It is my pleasure to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. It's my pleasure because we are beginning a new series in the book of Philippians, which is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. And so very excited uh, about this series here in Philippians. And I I believe you'll see um, pretty quickly that it will tie in very well with what we've already been studying in the book of Acts at the beginning of this year. And uh, I, I will say the book of Philippians, this, you know, starting a new book, it won't take quite as long as Genesis or Exodus did to make it through. <laughs> you know, each of those took a couple of years uh, to, to move through those books, and those were re- rich and, and wonderful studies. And, and I believe that even though this is going to be, you know, a much shorter study uh, moving through the book of Philippians, it will be no less rich and no less uh, life-transforming. Uh, I do just want to mention a couple things, you know, and I'm going to like have my introduction in a second, so hold on for that. Uh, but I, I want to tell you a little bit about this book, uh, the book of Philippians. Um, as most of you probably know, the book of Philippians uh, was written by Paul to the church that was in a city, uh, an ancient city named Philippi. So Paul wrote it to this church in Philippi, and um, Philippi, I, I kind of put it on a map there, is uh, at the southeastern border of modern-day Greece. It's the uh, yellow star up there at the top. You see Jerusalem's the red star of David, uh, and you have uh, modern-day Greece up there, the most uh, southeastern border. And what's cool about the the church at Philippi is um, Acts chapter 16 is is where the church at Philippi was planted by Paul. And while it wasn't uh, in mileage that much further away from the epicenter of Christianity there in Jerusalem, uh, what was significant about it is it was the very first church in Europe. So this was a continental shift, right? Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so when this church at Philippi was planted, it was a new step closer to the ends of the earth. And so that is very significant. Um, And so I just kind of wanted you to have that background. Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey in Acts 16, the first church in Europe. And he is now writing to them some years later. So that's my little like just for context so you understand the relationship here. Uh, but I do want to begin today's sermon by, by giving you kind of my, my own made summary statement of this book. Um, and I think it will give you an indication as to why I like this book so much and why it will be so useful for us. And so here's my summary statement that, that, that I see as I have been reading and studying this book. Here's my summary statement. It's actually at the top of your notes. And um, oh, yeah, there it is the top of your notes, as well as on the screen. So here's my summary statement of what we're going to be seeing in this series uh, beginning today. A life well-lived is a life well-leveraged for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. I I think that is going to be the major theme that we will see over and over again in the book of Philippians, is a, a life well lived. That life that you are desiring, that your, your heart is longing for, that life well lived is a life well leveraged for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. And I want to just mention that word leveraged is, is taking whatever is at your disposal and using it to accomplish some goal. And so that's what I'm saying. A life well lived is is a life that leverages every resource at our disposal to pursue the glory of God in Christ Jesus and the eternal good of others. That is what I believe the book of Philippians is about. And what's really cool though, uh, and we're going to see this even in in today's message, is not only is it a life about leveraging uh, a book about leveraging your life, but it's also a book about joy, right? More, more than any New Testament book, uh, the book of Philippians just mentions his joy. The concentration of the words rejoice and joy are, are just over and over, even though 
It's about leveraging your life. And, and that's a beautiful, uh, glorious harmony in, in the plan of God, is that as we leverage our lives for the glory of God, the eternal good of others, it will be a life well lived. And so this is, this is where we're going in the book of Philippians. It is, it is seeking to depart from a comfortable, safe, and easy version of Christianity and moving into what is often a, a, an uncomfortable, uh, sometimes dangerous uh, following of Christ. But it is where we will find in Christ our fullest hope, joy, peace, meaning, and satisfaction. The only source of those things is Christ and serving him in these ways. And so that, that, that's where Paul, the human author, and God, the divine author, will be taking us through this series in the book of Philippians. And so let's just go ahead and begin by, by reading uh, the, the first two verses, the introduction to this letter, and, and we'll pray and we'll, we'll, we'll dig into it. So uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's word for us today. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study today. Father God, we do want to do what we were designed to do, and that is to worship you, to glorify you, and enjoy you above all else. We want to, that to be the, the, the driving purpose and passion of our lives, God. And so would you help us even today to take just another step in that direction, God? To submit our whole lives to worshiping, glorifying, and enjoying you above all else. Would you do that by your spirit, through your word today? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the introduction to the book of, of Philippians, you know, I, I was looking over it and saying, you know, what, what is the, the main thing I want to draw out here? And, and I'll tell you what, what struck me first and, and what I began to dig into deeper is how Paul identifies himself in Timothy. I mean, this is interesting. Paul, the missionary who, who, who brought them the gospel, this is how he identifies himself and, and, of course, his companion Timothy with him. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I, I began to kind of look into that and, and thinking through, why would Paul say that to them? Why is that why uh, the, the way Paul would identify himself to this church that he's about to write to? And you know, I, I did like, you know, a word search, and, and you may already know this, but that word servant in the Greek is doulos, which is, also, is the same word as slave. This is slave, bond servant. Uh, this is a lifelong service. And that's what Paul says. I, here's how I identify myself as a servant of Christ Jesus. You say, man, that's just an interesting way of talking, you know. Like as we're all mingling, maybe, you know, a, a visitor comes to you and you're like, hi, I'm Jeff. What's your name? I'm Paul, you know. And you're like, okay, cool. Uh, what do you do, Jeff? Oh, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. Like this is an odd way of talking. And, and we, we just don't really think in those terms often ways. And I think that that's exactly why Paul identifies himself and Timothy in this way. Because it's not normal, it's not natural to think of ourselves as servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. And so Paul, I believe, is giving himself as an example. And again, this will be a common theme in the book of Philippians, is that Paul is, is going to, all throughout it, give theology, truth, and he's going to give application. But he's also going to give, yes, Jesus, but also himself as an example for them to follow. And so Paul here, the way he identifies himself, the way he describes himself, that he seems most important for him to share with them is Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. 
And so I want to go ahead and just dive into what this means, is that there's this great reality that Paul is telling them and giving as an example, and that is this, number one in your notes, and we're going to dig into this, all Christians are servants of Christ Jesus. All Christians. This is, this is an identity thing. This is something that has been uh, placed upon you. Whether or not you're living it out, this is what you're called to be. All Christians are servants of Christ Jesus. Paul is identifying himself in this way. This is the first way, the primary way he, he identifies himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. And he's giving himself as an example because all Christians are to be servants and to live as servants of Christ Jesus. I, I just want to say this. You are a slave of Jesus to do the will, the bidding of your master. I, I, I say it so bluntly because I, I want to see how it responds, like how, how your heart responds to that. Because most of us don't like hearing that. We, we don't like the idea that we're a slave to anything or anyone. Especially here in America, we are all about independence, personal autonomy, right? We make our own decisions. We do what we want. We, we want no um, obligation to serve others. We might serve when we feel like it, but no obligation to serve. And, and to be quite honest with you and just blunt about it, that, that is because of sin. That even when God says, you are my servant, we still have this, hmm, I, I don't like that. I, I don't want him to tell me what to do. I mean, and it's true. This is, this is absolutely true. Uh, like in the world that people don't want to be servants or slaves of another, certainly not of God. But this has even infiltrated Christianity in the church. And we need to be aware of that. I, I don't know what to, to what degree it has infiltrated our thinking, our, our church, but it is certainly in the char church at large. And, and so here's kind of uh, the thinking there. Oh, by the way, it's so prevalent that we have a name for it. It's called consumer Christianity. Like, I'm a consumer. I'm a recipient. I just consume uh, what is given to me uh, rather than serving. And so here, here's kind of the line of thinking. People believe Christ saved my life, but it's still my life. You catch that? Christ saved me. Yes, Christ died and rose again to save my life, but it's still my life. That's a common attitude uh, within the church and within Christians. And ultimately, we the Christian are imagined as the master with God as our servant. And so you think about how people go about Christianity we, we read our Bibles, I say we, just again, a general we, we read our Bibles, why? So I can get that, that nugget of comforting truth. We pray, but it's very similar to ringing a bell for our butler to do something for us. Hey, I need something, hey, I need something, sir. I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't ask, but we're, we're treating God uh, as our servant in many ways when that's the only way we think of these things. And this is translated, by the way, into the church. People say, well, as a Christian, God is supposed to serve me, therefore the church is supposed to serve me. The church is supposed to be a place where I feel accepted, where I feel comfortable. It's supposed to have you know, a comfortable seat and a good show put on for me. I'm supposed to walk away emotionally uh, and, and spiritually filled and satisfied. And if that happens, then I did church that day. If the church served me well enough, then I did church that day. But, but I, want, I want to tell you something. This is not the case. When you become a, a Christian, when you are saved, you become a slave a servant of Christ Jesus. And, and I want to kind of show you, um, just mo mostly through the writings of Paul, uh, the, the thinking here. Because, again, I want to help you overcome that, no, I don't want to be a servant. I don't want to be a slave. I want to help you. I want to help me overcome that. I want to help us all gladly submit under the lordship of Christ. 
And so here, here's what I want to help us work through today as we recognize that all Christians are servants of Christ Jesus. And this is the, the first little sub-point in your notes. This is what we need to understand to make peace with this idea. First, you are always a slave of something or someone. Always. You were born a slave of something or someone, and you will spend the rest of your life a slave of something or someone. There is no such thing as true personal autonomy. There is no such thing as freedom that is completely unconfined and unrestrained by any force. It simply does not exist. The only question is, who are you a slave to? Who or what are you a slave to? Uh, I want to uh, give you Romans 16. It's, it's one of the most wonderful passages on this that helps us understand that we really have two choices on, on, on what it is we serve uh, as human beings. Romans 16, uh, verses 16 to 22, Paul says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? We're all obeying something or someone, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And, and I'll just mention here, I'm going to go to the next verses in just a moment, the, the following verses. But Paul simply states it as a fact that everyone was once a slave of sin. You are obeying your sinful nature. You are obeying Satan's temptations. You are obeying this sinful world system that we are currently immersed in. And you are a slave of sin. Not free to do what you want to do, but free to do what sin tells you to do. What sin forces you <clears throat> to do. And this is what, what he goes on to say. <clears throat> Excuse me. For when you were slaves of sin, and everyone was, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to do the right thing. That's about the extent of your freedom. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin, here's what it's going to pay you. You're a slave to sin, here's its payment. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are always a slave of something or someone, either of sin or of righteousness, either of Satan or of Jesus Christ. The wages of sin, what it will pay you back for your, your, your service, is death. But the free gift, that's important, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the amazing thing about being a servant of Jesus is you receive the full payment without the service. It's his service to you. It's his gift to you. You get the salvation. You get the eternal life, and you become freed from sin and his uh, slave, his servant. This is a wondrous thing. The, the only question, again, is are you a slave of, of sin that is, that is dragging you through the mud. I just want you to think about this. Like we, we say, I, I want to be free to sin. How is that working out for you? Like when you do sin in your life, whether it be relational sin or private sin, like is it, what's the fruit of that in your life right now? Is, is that going well for you? 
People think if I could just be selfish, then it would be great. If I could just live for me, then it would be great. There are some people out there who are trying that, and they are the most miserable people that I know. I know some people who are very selfish and very, very miserable. Serving yourself, serving sin does not bring happiness, and its ultimate end is death. But we are either a slave of that, or we are under the kind, compassionate, loving, caring servitude of Jesus. Those are our options, where he gives us freely eternal life, and we work and we serve from that salvation from that redemption, from that ransom price that he paid for us, we serve from that, not to earn his salvation, but because we are saved. And I'll tell you, this is freedom. This is true freedom. There, there, again, there's no such thing as freedom that is full personal autonomy. That does not exist. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of God or of Jesus, however you want to term that. Because God exists, like (laughs) there is no personal autonomy because God exists and he is God. But living as a servant of God, that is true freedom in the way that we should want. I I love the way uh, Peter puts this, 1 Peter 2, 16. He says, live as people who are free. You say, oh, so live however I want to, do whatever my flesh wants, whatever my momentary desires may be, live free? No, 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 look what he says. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That is true freedom, to live as a servant of God, to live as a slave of Christ Jesus. That's where life and joy, and freedom are. You say, well, how can that be? How can it be that laying down my wants, laying down my desires, laying down my dreams can actually be the the path to life and joy and fulfillment and peace? How, How could that possibly be? Well, I'll give you this principle, this next point. It's a long one, I admit, (laughs) that may be the longest point I've ever put in your notes, but there's so many different dimensions that we must hold together because God does, because the Bible does. The Bible holds all these dimensions together. And so here's how it works for a servant of Jesus. I'll, I'll read it, and you can hopefully fill these in as we go along. Servants of Jesus find their joy in doing the will of Jesus for his glory and the eternal good of others. Now, if you like want to think of arrows for which way this is pointing, you have arrows pointing every direction. <laughs> the servant of Jesus finds their joy, so the arrow is pointing at you right now, doing the will of Jesus for his glory and the eternal good of others. The arrows are pointing every direction. And, and I want you to think about this, that there are many who believe, and I know we all believe it at some level, still, still we believe, if I truly lay down my life in service to Jesus, I'll be miserable. At some level, we all still believe that. My life will be entirely devoid of joy if I lay down my sin and if I I pursue the glory of Jesus and if I pursue the good of others, if I'm doing the will of Jesus, then, then I will be devoid of joy. But that is the exact opposite of the truth. Um, I, I just got to do it. I, I, I think I used this verse last week and probably the verse before. Um, just my, some of my favorite verses, John 15, 10 and 11. This is the way God has wired the world. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, John 15, uh, 10 to 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Servants of Jesus find their joy in doing the will 
of Jesus. If you obey my commandments, you will abide in my Father's, abide in my love, just as I abide in my, kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've told you these things, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You will not find the deep satisfaction, the deep joy your heart is longing for without doing the will of Jesus, because it is the joy of Jesus that you are longing for in you. Your joy full. This is what we find as servants of Jesus. Now, on the other hand, you have some who say, I can't possibly have joy. I've just shown you. No, it is the path to joy. Others will say, well, if I'm a servant of Jesus, then I have an excuse not to serve others. I'm serving Jesus, thank you. I don't have time for you. Jesus is my master. I'm not going to, to bend down and serve you. But that's, again, ridiculous and the exact opposite of the truth. Just think of the greatest commandment. I didn't put this in um, the PowerPoint or anything, but Matthew 26, um, yeah, sorry, Matthew 22, <clears throat> a man asked Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To serve Jesus is to serve others. Love God, love neighbor. This is what it means to serve Jesus. You think about this. Jesus, when he came into this world, he came to serve God the Father, but in so doing, he served others. He was, he was sent by the Father. He's been walking in obedience to the Father. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. He uh, humbled himself become, by becoming obedient uh, to, to God the Father. But in doing that, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the pattern. That when we are serving Jesus, doing the will of Jesus, what we end up doing is serving others, serving their eternal good for the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, however you want to think of that. This is the way that it works for the servant of Jesus. We find our joy doing his will for the glory of God and the good of others. And, and this just... This pattern like just is all through. Like, we see different aspects of it all through the book of Philippians. And this is why I, I bring it up now. But, but again, you think about uh, these verses that we just started with. We see Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So Paul is actively serving Jesus. But then he's writing this letter to all the saints in Christ at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So it's to them. And what's he trying to accomplish? Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is a servant of Jesus, but in service of Jesus, he's serving the church at Philippi. And he's pointing them to God, his grace, his peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I see a couple other examples. And, and Philippians is just filled with this stuff. Um, but the rest, uh, so much of this is about how Paul is delighted, gladly delighted, rejoicing uh, in serving these people for the glory of God and their eternal good. I see in Philippians uh, 1, 25 and 26, we'll get there uh, in a handful of weeks, he, Paul says this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Why? So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you. You see that? Paul's a servant of Jesus. He's already identified himself that way. And he says, I I'm going to come to you for your progress and your joy in the faith. And the reason I'm doing that is to the glory of Christ Jesus, that you will glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul serves Jesus, but he serves Philippi. God gets the glory. They get the good. Paul gets the joy. Philippians 2, 17 to 18 kind of highlight the, the joy there. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice 
with me. So Paul's saying, again, I'm a servant of Jesus, but I am pouring myself out on your offering. That, that your offering uh, of joy, or sorry, no, your offering of, of your faith, I, I'm pouring that out on you, that, that your offering re- would resound to the glory of God. But I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You just see this, this good of others, Paul's joy, the glory of God, as Paul serves Jesus and serves others. And so th- this is just a wonderful dynamic that we must understand. The path to true life is dying to yourself. The, the path of, of, of truly Finding your fulfillment is to stop pursuing your fulfillment, but the fulfillment of others, the eternal good of others, for the sake of Jesus and his glory. This is where joy is found. This is how God gets his glory, and this is how good is done to those who are around us. This is a beautiful harmony. And just you think about the harmony of that. Like God wants you to serve him for your joy and the good of others like You are a servant. You are a slave of Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean you're no longer a child of God. That doesn't mean you're no longer a citizen of his kingdom. It doesn't mean you're no longer his uh, beloved. It doesn't mean you're no longer a friend of God. Like all of those things remain true. It is good to be a servant of God, even as we continue being a friend and a child of God. Now, I want to try to get a little bit practical, moving it from uh, just the, the theoretical, you're a servant of Jesus, to, well, what does that look like? What, what would that mean for my life? And again, what we have here is, I, I want to use Paul as an example. We could use Jesus as an example, but I'm going to use Paul um, as an example, because flawed as he was, he was a very good servant of Christ Jesus. And so what we're going to see and that, that he did in his life, and that we should do with our lives, is this. We should leverage everything to serve the mission of Christ Jesus. This is what I'm going to show you, both from Acts, when he founded uh, the church in, in Acts 16, and from uh, the book of Philippians. We should leverage everything at our disposal to serve the mission of Christ Jesus. And so I'm going to show you this just to kind of give you an idea what that would mean to leverage, to take everything at your disposal and use it for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so here are just a a couple examples from Paul's life. And I'm putting it in the, the applied terminology here, but I'm going to show you Paul's example. Leverage, leverage your background and experiences. Let leverage your background and experiences. Paul was amazingly good at this, at leveraging uh, his background and his experiences for the glory of Jesus and the eternal good of others. And so basically, Paul's background and experiences uh, consisted of three major elements. And uh, if you're familiar with Paul, most of this will be familiar. Um, you know, you, you'll know about these things, but otherwise I'll, I'll try to uh, fill you in. But the three major elements that, that made up Paul at this point was, first, uh, Paul's ethnic and religious uh, upbringing was that of an Israelite. You see that on the screen. Israel, uh, Judaism, influenced Paul. But Paul grew up in the city named Tarsus. You know, we know him as Saul of Tarsus. Um, so, so Paul, he was from a city named Tarsus, which was uh, kind of a Hellenized Greek culture there. But then, uh, strangely enough, and this was odd, Paul was a full-fledged Roman citizen. Uh, this is during the, the, the time of Roman rule um, and, and most of the civilized world, and Paul was a uh, Roman citizen. And uh, th- this is what Paul had in his life, that sort of formed his, his uh, background and his experiences. And what we see as you follow the book of Acts and as you look at, at the, the letters he wrote is he continually leveraged these things about himself. Now, Paul did not think of himself as, I'm an Israelite. 
I'm, I'm from Tarsus. I'm a Roman citizen. That's not how Paul addressed himself, right? He, he addresses himself as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean his experiences and his background went away. It means he used those things to leverage uh, being as being a servant of Christ Jesus. And so me, let me just kind of tell you what this looked like. In Philip. Sorry, in Acts chapter 16, where you see the founding of the church, you can kind of see all of these elements happen <clears throat> there in Acts 16. The first thing Paul did when he got to Philippi, so he's kind of embarking on this European mission now. The first thing he did was he looked for a Jewish presence to share the gospel with his fellow Israelite, with his fellow Jew. So that, that's what he did. But he didn't find any synagogue. There weren't enough Jews around uh, to, to be allowed to have a synagogue. There was a, a minimum number. And so what he did is he found a prayer meeting uh, by the river. of, And there were God-fearers there. So God-fearers are people who, who they're not uh, ethnic Israelites, but they follow the religion of Israel. They have, they have trusted in Yahweh God. And so that's where Paul runs into Lydia and some other ladies, that, ladies there that are, are worshiping and praying to the one true God, but they don't know about Christ Jesus. And so what's interesting is Paul is able to use his Jewish background, no doubt, to show them, hey, you, you're worshiping the one true God. That's awesome. Let me tell you about his son, Jesus Christ. And he could connect it to the Old Testament scriptures. He could connect it to the faith that they already had in the true God, but to now see the true Savior that the Old Testament was pointing to. So he leveraged that part of his upbringing and experiences. But then, as, as events uh, continue on, um, and you, you really should read Acts 16. It's, it's some crazy stuff. Um, Paul casts out a demon from a slave girl, and uh, the owners of that slave girl uh, get angry. And so Paul and Silas are beaten <clears throat> and thrown in prison. But again, through a strange set of events, Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel with the guard there. And here again, you have uh, a man who would be in that Greek culture, but Paul is fluent in Greek culture. He knows the language. He knows their culture. He knows their religion. And so he's able to speak to that, that prison guard and to his family in such, a way, <clears throat> in such a way that they are able to understand the gospel and trust in the gospel. And then... Uh, the next day, uh, Paul is to be released from prison. And you know what he says? Hey, it's really interesting that you guys beat me and threw me in prison uh, without any sort of trial, any sort of hearing, even though I'm a Roman citizen. That's interesting that you guys did that. That was highly illegal to, to beat uh, a Roman citizen um, without <clears throat> first giving them a hearing, a, a trial of some sort. And so the, the leaders at that moment are like, oh no. And so Paul's like, you're not going to just have us walk out of here. What you're going to do is give a public apology to us. Uh, you know, letting everyone know that our imprisonment and that this, this beating, it, there was nothing wrong about them, that it was wrongful. And so what Paul was able to do in that moment was to vindicate Christianity there uh, in Philippi, at least from the government standard. There was still persecution of the church there but at least the government wasn't hunting them down and throwing them in prison because Paul had vindicated Christianity by making them publicly apologize. Why? Because he was a Roman citizen. And so I, I give you those as an example, not that you can imitate any of those things uh, exactly, but to say, what about your background and your experiences could you leverage for Jesus? Maybe it's your job, maybe it is your upbringing, maybe it's the part of, you know, the country or the world where you're brought up, like, uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's your education, maybe it's your hobbies even, like, that you grew up doing, the sports you grew up playing or still play. Those need to be leveraged for Jesus. I'll, I'll just tell you what this has looked like for me um, in, in one way, and I, I have a, a handful of these, but... Um, Right after high school, uh, I went to college and trained to be a motorcycle mechanic. And so I, I worked at a motorcycle shop for uh, about like four and a half years as a, as a motorcycle technician. And so um, 
it's one of those things that now when I see a motorcycle, you know, it's just very easy for me uh, to see the motorcycle and the owner and just walk up and just be like, oh man, I love this motorcycle, you know, and I can just easily engage with them and kind of be like, oh, I love how you've done this and stuff. And then I can tell them, you know, I actually used to be a motorcycle technician um, uh, in, in my, my younger years or whatever. And what that actually does is I don't care about their respect, but it, it gives me an immediate level of uh, credibility with them that like, okay, this guy, he knows what he's talking about, you know, and, and so they're, they're listening to me and they're, they're, we're engaged and we have uh, a relationship before we even know each other because we have this commonality of motorcycles, even though I don't own a motorcycle today. Um, that's just from my background. But then one of my experiences is that when I was uh, 19 years old, on my way to college, I had a semi-truck do a U-turn in front of me and I plowed into it with my motorcycle. Uh, I've got lots of lifelong injuries from that. My point is though, that's a huge part of my testimony is that ultimately that, that's, that's what drew me to Christ was through that wreck. So using the motorcycle again, this very easy connection that I have, I'm, I'm already talking to them about motorcycles and then they say, well, what do you ride? You know, I'm like, well, I actually don't ride anymore. Oh yeah, why not? Well, let me tell you a story. And then boom, I get to tell them, I don't, you know, the wreck and, and all that, whatever, but I want to tell them about the Jesus who changed my life. Though, though 50% of my vision is gone, I get to see Christ with the eyes of my heart because of what Christ Jesus did, because of this wreck. And so, again, th this is just what, the way it is for me. I have this background. I have these experiences. And I truly don't, like, care about them. They're coming and looking at their motorcycle anymore. But I'm like, I see this as an opportunity to leverage my background, to leverage my experiences for the sake of the gospel, the glory of God, and that person's eternal good who will spend eternity under God's punishment if they do not hear about and trust in this Jesus. And so again, there's, there, there's as many different variations of that as there are people in this room. Because we all have slightly different backgrounds, slightly different experiences, slightly different educations, slightly different traumas that have happened like mine uh, with that wreck. But we can leverage those. But, but another thing that we see is kind of more our day-to-day uh, this is the, the next one there. Leverage your circumstances. Leverage your circumstances. I don't think I put the, much of the verses in here. I, I kind of want to uh, just again tell you what, what happened there in Acts when Paul got to lead <clears throat> that, that jailer to the Lord. It, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful story in Acts 16. You're welcome to turn there with me. I just think it's, it's worth seeing how Paul used his circumstances, leveraged his circumstances for the gospel. Um, we'll just pick up uh, in verse 23 of Acts 16, verse 23. So Paul has cast out the demon from the demon-possessed girl. The owners are angry. And so verse 23, uh, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, upon Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his order, he put them uh, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So people are really mad about Paul and Silas casting this demon out because they were making profit uh, from this slave girl. They're really mad. They say, make sure you hold them. This is important. And so he not only puts them in prison, he puts them in the inner prison and fastens their, seats, their feet in stocks. Verse 25, this is where things get cool. About midnight, Paul and Silas, I love this, were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I mean, they're, they're, they're in prison, and they're praying, and they're singing hymns to God loud enough that the other prisoners can hear. They're already using their circumstances. But look at this. In verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Who sends earthquakes, by the way? Is it just tectonic plates shifting? Or is it the mighty hand of God? The prison was shaken, and here we go. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. I, love, I mean, so what would you do in that situation, right? Your circumstances are, well, I'm in prison. I've just been beaten yesterday. I'm here with the doors locked and, and, and stalks around my feet. An earthquake just came, the doors open, the bonds fall off my feet. 
all, all, the only thing I have to look forward to is my trial and further beatings, you know. But look at what happens. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he, threw, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This would have been a big problem for him. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. They didn't leave, even though the doors were open and the, the bonds were off their feet. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> he says, you guys have something different. You were in the worst of circumstances, but you were singing, and, and sorry, you were praying and singing hymns to God while you're in the worst of circumstances, and when those circumstances became where you could just leave, you stayed. There's something different about you. See, here, here's, here's what happened. Paul was more concerned with the mission of Christ than his own comfort. He sees that God is in control, is sovereign over his circumstances. If I'm in this prison, I'm actually here for a reason. I've got work to do here. It's not where I want to be. It's not comfortable. My back hurts from the beating I just got, this scourging. Like, this, this really stinks. But you know what? I'm going to pray and, and be singing hymns to God. And then even when they have the opportunity for freedom, he says, you know what? We could just leave and kind of skip town. But this could actually be a great opportunity for the mission of Christ, to glorify Christ for the good of others. And so this, this uh, centurion, this, this jailer, uh, whatever you want to call him, he trusts in Jesus and, and he has his whole family here and they trust in Jesus and they are baptized. And so I would just say to you, I don't know your circumstances. You don't know your circumstances, what they're going to be tomorrow, but have your eyes open, your ears open, looking, knowing that God is in control and knowing that God can use your circumstances for his glory if we are ready to leverage them. We need to be ready for that. And Paul did that over and over. By the way, um, I don't think I have it. Do I? Yeah, I do. Is that 12, 12? Yep. So Paul is currently writing this letter from prison. This is what he says. I want you to know, brothers, here there in Philippi, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Uh, and he says, all the brothers have become even more bold because of my witness. And so like Paul sees, I'm in prison right now, but I want you to know, don't worry about it. Like I'm, I'm in bad circumstances, but, but God's using them and I'm leveraging them for the glory of Christ and the mission of Christ. All right, there we go. That's both Acts and Philippians you got on that one. Uh, but in addition to that, I won't spend long here because we'll spend a lot of time here in the future, but Paul leveraged his relationships. You should leverage your relationships. We've been talking about this, right? Fellowship, partnership. And, and as we see here, that this letter begins with Paul saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Then he's writing to other people, fellow Christians, to the saints at Philippi. Then he talks about relationships in there to the overseers and deacons like paul is all about these relationships and leveraging them for the mission of god and again i, I don't want to spend too long here because i'm a, uh, I, I want to preach them in the future um, and, and dig deep but paul is all about this partnership this fellowship hey you're a christian Let, let's work together let's work together to reach more people and bring them into the kingdom of christ let, let, let's work together, let's, let's share in this partnership, let's strive together for the glory of God and the eternal good of others, and, and in that we'll all be rejoicing as we work together. Paul continually leveraged his relationships, and again, we'll look more at this uh, in future sermons, but I just want to mention this, like, you have all sorts of relationships in your life, and you have all sorts of, uh, sorry, you have all sorts of Christian relationships in your life. But you also have unsaved relationships. And so we, we just have to all think through that. Who, who do I know that's unsaved, that, that needs to be reached? Who do I know that's saved, that can be a part of reaching them with me? Let's partner in this. Let's, 
I mean, maybe it's just that we pray together about reaching this person. Maybe it's that we discuss how I might reach them. Or maybe it's that we go together and, and, and over time try to, you know, build that relationship and lead them to Christ. Whatever that looks like, we, we can do that in our relationships. We can do that in our small groups. We can do this uh, in powerful ways. And this is the way Paul worked because it's the way God works. We, we've been talking about this. We, we shine as a city set upon a hill, not as individual houses. We use relationships, we leverage relationships for the sake of the gospel. But I do want to end with this final point. This is just kind of uh, helping us think this through. Leverage your life. Join in me in, in, in trying to say, my life is not my own. I want to use my, everything in my life for the service of Christ. His glory, the good of others the Great Commission, making disciples and training disciples. I want to be about that because that is what, is what will glorify God. That is what will be for the good of others and I will find great joy in it. Leverage your life. Anything, everything. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 1, 20 to 21. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will, will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That should be our aim. That our hearts would get there, that we would willingly lay down our lives in glad service of Jesus, but also that our lives would get there, that we would actually leverage the things in our lives, everything we have in our lives for the glory of Christ, the good of others, and our deep joy and satisfaction in him. This is truly life. A life well lived is a life well leveraged for the glory of God and the good of others. What is God calling you to lay down and to leverage today? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word today. It was a small portion and we really only